Now this morning before we begin, there's a few things I want to let you know about. First, some of the bulletins have the wrong scripture passage in it. Don't worry about it. It'll be correct. It's up on the screen. Our live stream failed this morning, so we're broadcasting from my phone to Facebook only. Everything is kind of going right. So before I even start anything, I would like to pray. I'm a little breathless. Let's pray. God, we come before you and recognize that this morning, as much as we want this to be all about you, it's easy for us to make it about ourselves. Um, I confess that, that when things go wrong, I get flustered and frustrated because I think it's about me. And so I ask that you would calm my heart, that you would grant to us peace this morning so that we could hear from you, from your word, that we would know Jesus this morning, his love for us. And that we would be changed by it. I pray that you would send your spirit to us this morning. That when we feel convicted, you would encourage us. That when we feel cold, you would warm our hearts. That we would be able to receive your forgiveness. I pray that my word would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Jesus is on the move again in the Gospel of John, as he has been. Last week, we saw at a dinner party that was thrown, probably to thank Jesus for raising Lazarus from the dead, that Mary, Lazarus' sister, anointed Jesus with this expensive ointment, and then she wiped his feet with her hair. And Judas threw a hissy fit. He was not happy about this. And so... He leaves, departs the scene, and Jesus as well leaves Bethlehem. He is heading to Jerusalem. And this passage this morning might be familiar to you because it is recording for us the reason that we commemorate Palm Sunday. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But I want you to listen to this passage. Does it feel triumphant to you? John chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. When a large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on the donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I have these tiny bubble levels. You know what a bubble level is? It's a small tube with bright yellow or green liquid in it. It has a little bubble inside. And it's only about an inch long. I've collected these over the years as Nicole has purchased um, 
furniture or art to hang on the walls, they come to help you know if the piece of furniture you're building or the art or shelves that you're hanging on the wall is actually level so things don't slide off or it tips over. I have three of them. They're very, very small. And I use them to play a game with my daughters. I hide them around the house. They each have a little sticky sticker on the bottom, and I stick them to different things. And then they go around and try to find them. I put them on top of lampshades, up top, high on bookshelves, put them on doors, I put them on the windowsills at the very top, I put them down low sometimes. And I am amazed at how quickly they can find these little levels. They're so small, and yet, within a day of me hiding them, they'll find all three and tell me that I need to hide them again. What's even more amazing to me, though, is that those same daughters will come to me and say, Daddy, have you seen a hairbrush? I've looked everywhere. And there are two right in front of them on the counter. Sometimes, we all have to admit, that we can totally miss the obvious. Sunglasses on top of our head. Keys in the other pocket. A phone, a purse, a wallet, a backpack. It is easy to miss something that is right in front of us. Lots of people in this passage miss Jesus. Sure, sure you're saying. I'm sure there were some folks who thought Jesus was coming in by road A and they went to road B instead and he wasn't there, so they missed out. Or the crowd was really big, so someone was in the back, they probably didn't get to see him. That's not what I'm talking about. The people come and they wave these branches and they're shouting Hosanna and the Apostle John tells us that they are looking for a different Jesus. They are preparing the way for a different God who's going to do different things. And they miss the real Jesus and what he is really doing, where he is really going. And the truth is, for us on this Palm Sunday, some 2,000 years later, it's easy for us to miss Jesus too, for strikingly similar reasons. But if we follow him, the real him to the place where he is going. Our lives, this passage tells us, will never be the same. Don't miss Jesus. You'll find him at the cross where true life begins. Three points for us this morning, which are not in the slides. So there you go. There's another thing. Don't miss Jesus is the first point. This, this passage is quite popular. It is quite common. You've probably heard it before. It is also very important. The fact that all four gospel writers record Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem with all of its pomp and all of its celebration at the beginning of his Passion Week tells us that this is a really big event. A big event for Jesus in his life and the lives of those that followed him as well. The odd thing is that the way John reports it is pretty plain. It's very simple. He, unlike the other gospel writers, don't, doesn't record all of the tiny details of this prophecy that is being fulfilled. How all the moms got there, what exactly the people were doing, where Jesus found the donkey, all those kinds of things. For John, it's very simple. Jesus sets out from Bethany on the way to Jerusalem. And with him goes his disciples. They've been around him for a while as well as the crowd of people who were with Jesus in Bethany when he brought Lazarus forth from the tomb. This group of people are traveling towards Jerusalem, and they're met by another group of people. 
pilgrims who have shown up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. They hear that Jesus is coming, and they come out to meet him on his way. And these groups coalesce, ready for the moment. His moment, the moment, the king is going to take his rightful place on the throne in Jerusalem. Verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees, went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Everything about this scene is royal. Everything about this scene shouts victory. This phrase, Hosanna, is a common exclamation. We've said it already this morning. When we translate it from the Hebrew, it means save us. Save us, they're shouting. These palm branches are significant because in the time that Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, the nation of Israel has adopted the palm frond as a symbol of freedom. Over 200 years before, during the Maccabean revolts, this symbol, the palm frond, became the sign that the people of Israel looked to to celebrate impending national liberation. They were stamped on all the coinage that the people used during the time of the Maccabean Revolt. So when these groups of people gathered these palm fronds, waved them around, laid them on the road, shout Hosanna, here comes the King of Israel, they are saying, at last, here comes the victorious King. He will save us, save us, King. These people want Jesus to be their king, to free them from Rome. And why shouldn't they? They've seen him do some amazing things. They've heard about his mighty works. He's healed people. He's fed people. He's cared for the people of Israel. And on top of that, he raised someone from the dead. It seems like freeing the city fits within his scope of abilities. They want him to be their victorious king. They want him to do this thing. And that's not why he's going to Jerusalem. They're so busy looking for Jesus to fit their mold that they miss him entirely. My freshman year of college, I lived with my high school best friend. And it was about halfway through the year that I realized our lives were going in different directions. We were both in marching band together, but he started to hang out with the kids that were partying on the weekends and drinking a lot. And I was a good kid. I didn't drink. He decided to play video games all night long, sleep in until noon, and didn't take his first class until 3 o'clock. But I had front-loaded my classes. I got up and I went to class at 8 so that I could have a whole afternoon to hang out with people and have fun. We were underage and he started bringing alcohol into the dorm. And I just sensed that we were slowly drifting apart. We weren't as close as we had been. We were going down a different path. And I thought to myself, if he just became a Christian, he could be a better friend. He would be a better friend to me. We'd be more alike. And so I invited him to come to a campus ministry event, Reform University Fellowship, the campus ministry I was a part of, was having a progressive dinner, where you go from one house, you have an appetizer, the next house, you have your salad, and the next house, you have soup, something like that, I don't remember. And it was this huge event. We were all gonna do it at the same time. And I invited him 
thinking this is it. This is a fun thing for him to go to, to be around some other Christians, to meet Jesus, and things will change. And he agreed. We get to the van that was the family was driving us to the first house, and he paused and said, you know, actually, I think I'm just, I'm going to stay one tonight. We were driving to the first house, and I just was so crushed. I thought, Jesus, you've let me down. I've done everything the right way. I invited him. I've been good. I've set a good example. I invited him to a fun thing that would be weird for the first time, you know? And I just felt like it was a rejection of me. This is who I was. And I wanted him to come be a part of it, to be friends with me in it. And he said, in that essence, you're not worth it. This isn't it. And it was so frustrating that Jesus wasn't doing what I wanted him to do, and so hurtful. I actually never brought it up with him. I couldn't see what Jesus was doing, and so I just let it go. We miss Jesus for all kinds of reasons. We hope Jesus would do something specific, and when he does it, we're surprised. We hope Jesus will slip right into the space that we've carved out for him in our agenda. We cry out, save us. Hosanna. Save us from our loneliness. Hosanna, save me. Bring me a new job. Hosanna, save me. Make my spouse a better spouse. Save me. Bring me a spouse. Bring me a child. Fix my parents. Fix my kids. Take away the depression, the anxiety that has been ruining my life. We cry out, Hosanna, save me. Because we're looking for Jesus to do something specific. What are you hoping to get out of this? To get out of Jesus? Don't miss Jesus. You'll find him at the cross. It's my second point. You'll find him at the cross. Jesus isn't going to Jerusalem to become king of Israel. Okay, get that point. So why is he going there? What is he doing? Well, for us, here, 2,000 years later, we know the end of the story. And, you heard my second point, you know where Jesus is going. He's going to the cross. He's going to die. It's easy for us to get that point, but for those who are around him at this time, on the road, cheering him on, not even his disciples, those who were closest to him, understood. John tells us this in verse 16. It was only later, after he had died, after he had rose from the dead and was glorified, that they realized, oh, this makes sense now. I don't think that the disciples were just clueless. I don't think that everybody in that crowd was going, oh, let's just wave some palm branches. They understood what was going on, that Jesus had done some amazing things, that he kind of fit a few stereotypes they had for someone who had been promised to deliver Israel. Maybe this was the guy. They knew that they probably actually knew the prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, which is quoted in the middle of this passage. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. They probably knew that prophecy. And they said, this is it. Here is our king. But what they missed out on was Zechariah 9, 
verse 10. Why is the king coming? Zechariah 9 verse 10 says, When the king comes, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. The prophecy of the coming king doesn't signify war. It wasn't about liberation and insurrection. It was about peace across the earth. It was about unifying rather than separating. And everybody missed that. Which is why no one expected him to do what he did. Go to the cross willingly. Those long years of national oppression that Israel experienced was nothing compared to the guilty verdict and sentence of death, physical and eternal death that they faced for their sin, for breaking God's law. The same guilty verdict and sentence is declared over you and I. Freedom from that, deliverance from that, peace and unity, it only comes through death. That's exactly what Jesus does. What he's always been moving towards. He heads to Jerusalem, yes, but ultimately he is heading to Golgotha, the place of the skull, the hill where Jesus is nailed to a cross and he is mocked while he dies. It's a place that his disciples, the crowds that came to follow him, they don't want him to go, much less want to go with him. See, it's at the cross that their goals of victory and national liberation die along with their king to be. Meeting Jesus at the cross feels like death. It feels like death. But that's where Jesus is. That's where Jesus is going. And the invitation he extends to us is to meet him there. Your cross where you meet Jesus might look like accepting that you really are the way all those people tell you you are. Your cross where you meet Jesus may look like apologizing to a person that you hurt, even if you are never forgiven or they never speak to you again. Meaning Jesus at the cross might look like forgiving a person who hurts you, even if they never apologize. Meeting Jesus at the cross might look like changing jobs so that you can be home more often, or it might look like going back to work in the office. Meeting Jesus at the cross might look like spending your free time helping your neighbors, helping your coworkers or your boss or your employee your spouse or your kids without any acknowledgement at all. Meeting Jesus at the cross feels like death, but you know for sure Jesus is there. His way is the way of the cross. Meet him there. He will meet you there. And it's there that true life begins. My final point, it's there at the cross that true life begins. 
Perhaps you notice there's another main character in this passage. Jesus plays the prominent role, yes, but Lazarus is everywhere. Lazarus' name is mentioned three times in this passage, and each time he is also quoted as the one who Jesus brought forth from the tomb, or the recipient of this sign. Why? Why is Jesus so important to John? Well, Lazarus is the epitome of what it looks like when Jesus saves you from death. He has no business being here. Not in the story, at all, on earth at this point. He has no business sitting at the table and eating with them. He's only there because Jesus wants him there. His new life is miraculous. And everyone knows it. That's why they're coming to see him. John tells us in verse 9, and in 17 and 18, that these crowds, the one that go with them from Bethany, as well as the one that comes out of Jerusalem to meet them, they're there because Lazarus was brought back from the dead. It may seem like Lazarus is a little bit of a sideshow. This guy was dead in the tomb for four days, and Jesus brings him back. Meeting Jesus at the cross, it feels like death. But it's where true life begins. When you meet Jesus at the cross for the first time, you receive this life. The gospel, the Bible tells us that when you come to understand that Jesus is on the cross because of you, because of your sin, and you repent, you tell God, this is my fault. I'm the one that failed. I'm the one that deserves death. And you believe that Jesus' death on the cross takes the death that you deserve. And you believe that he extends to you the righteousness that he earned. You are filled with new life. The Holy Spirit dwelling in you. But guess what? When you meet Jesus at the cross for the 500th time, or the 10,000th time, and you realize, this is still my fault. And I still believe that Jesus died for me. You are filled with new life. God continues to change you. And it's not just an internal change. Believe me, it is that. But it's like the rock of redemption dropped into the pool of your life. The ripples of this new life just continue outward. It changes everything. It changes the way that you think and you feel, and you act, and you speak. Meeting Jesus at the cross, what feels like death, brings new life to the way that you think about yourself. It brings new life to the way that you interact with others, the way that you care for your body, for your mind, for your soul. It brings new life to the way that you spend your time, the way that you live. Meeting Jesus at the cross brings true life, the way things should be. Can you imagine how Lazarus lived after he had been brought out of the tomb? What would he be like? We spend so much of our lives avoiding risk, as Bob has mentioned. We, we do so much to avoid death, and here's a guy who has come back from it, set free from all of that fear. Set free from all of the restrictions and hesitancies and risk avoidance. Can you imagine the new life Lazarus is leading? The chief priests know this exact thing too. 
They know Lazarus is living proof of Jesus' power and his grace toward the powerless. That's why they target him. That's why they're going to kill him in addition to Jesus. He is proof. Proof that Jesus brings dead things back to life. And when you meet Jesus at the cross, so are you. Jesus has brought and is bringing dead parts of you back to life. Which also means, like Lazarus, you're not always going to be welcomed by the world or its inhabitants. And it's probably going to feel like death. You might be tempted to flee from that rejection. You might be tempted to try to fit in, to not own your faith or not live it out because you're going to be rejected by others or mocked or ostracized or maybe even condemned. Those words all describe exactly what happened to Jesus in just five days on Good Friday. It's probably going to feel like death. Jesus is there. That's what he is. About eight months ago, a new family showed up at my gym. They moved from Southern California the week before COVID hit, and so they hadn't been out half met anybody yet. They started showing up at the gym, and they learned that I was a pastor. And they said, it's great, we haven't found a church yet, because everybody's been online. When do you guys meet? So I invited them to one of our outdoor services. They're a great family, three little boys. They came, uh, enjoyed it, and then they didn't come back the next week. I started feeling all those same thoughts that I had experienced back in college come up again. You let me down, Jesus. I did everything right. Where are you? What are you doing? And this time, instead of just being frustrated and letting it go, I pushed in. To that pain and that disappointment, and I asked my friend Ian, Do you guys ever find a church? Which is really just my way of saying, Hey, you didn't come back, is everything okay? Said, Ian, did you guys find a church? Said, Oh, yeah, we started going to Westgate. How am I going to start doing this Bible study with these guys on Tuesday mornings, and our kids are really loving the kids' ministry? And you know what? I was so shocked because I wasn't upset. I wasn't hurt. I wasn't disappointed. I was excited that my friend was at a church and going to a Bible study. I never would have thought that that would be my reaction. There was new life in me that wasn't from me. But in going to that painful point, asking the question that I didn't want to ask, what felt like death, brought out the new life Jesus was working in me. Don't miss Jesus. He'll meet you at the cross where true life begins. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning and we're so thankful that Jesus is King. But it's easy for us to be disappointed that he's not the King that we want. Please help us to see where he is at work. Help us to recognize how he is leading our lives. What it looks like to live as members of the kingdom of God. Help us to see those things and to love them. To be excited by them. To be changed into the image of Jesus. 
Give us strength and sustain us because those are hard things. I pray that you would help us encourage one another as we walk to the cross through Jesus there. Because it is hard. It can be lonely and it is painful. We thank you that Jesus was willing to do it for us. That he went to the cross willingly. He suffered and he died of his own accord. And he rose again in victory. Letting us know that new life is ours in him. We pray all of this in his mighty and powerful name. Amen.